Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The clearance of the long-acting opioid methadone is associated with substantial inter-individual variability. Accumulation can lead to sedation, respiratory depression, and even death. Many cytochrome P450 or CYP enzymes are involved in the metabolism of methadone, and single nucleotide polymorphisms and enzymes such as CYP2B6 may be a factor in that variability. But fear not, one of Mayo Clinic's pharmacogenomic experts, Dr. Dimple DeCall, is here to take it one sip at a time and guide us through methadone dosing for complex patients. So the learning objective for today's presentation are as follows. At the end of this presentation, I hope that you'll be able to describe the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of methadone, identify and discuss clinical practice guideline recommendations for the safe use of methadone, and then evaluate the evidence that we have for CYP2B6 guided methadone use. But before I uh, dive deeper into the CYP2B6 pharmacogenetics relating to methadone, I'd like to talk about pharmacokinetics of methadone because it's quite unique. So a little bit of background about methadone. So why is it relevant? Well, according to the CDC in 2014, methadone accounted for just about 1% of all opioids that were prescribed for pain. However, out of the approximately 47,000 deaths that were seen, 23% of all of those deaths were methadone related. So this has primary, primarily to do with the fact that there is considerable inter-individual uh, vari variability when it comes to methadone dosing and how patients respond to methadone. So one person may not you know, respond to methadone the same way another person does. So for me, a five milligram three times a day may be a therapeutic dose, but for someone else that might be a toxic dose to start off with. So because of that, it's very important, especially with methadone, to make sure that we monitor our patients closely for side effects, such as respiratory depression or even prolongation of the QTC interval. So as far as indications, methadone can be used for pain and opioid use disorder, and mostly um, it's used for pain that's refractory to other medications like other opioids, for instance. Um, and it's also used for opioid use disorder because of its long elimination half-life. Um, patients are able to take methadone without experiencing uh, withdrawals. So what are some clinical concerns about methadone? So first of all, it's the inter-individual variability. So like I said before, the analgesic half-life and the elimination half-life is a little bit different. So the pain relief that patients get from methadone is short-lived, but methadone hangs around in your body much longer. So you're still gonna have those levels in your body. So there's a difference between the analgesic and the elimination half-life. And that can be different from one patient to next. And then drug interactions is another factor to keep in mind. So there's plenty of drug interactions because methadone is not just metabolized by one CYP enzymes, but quite a few CYP enzymes. 
And then of course, adverse effects. So just like any other opioid, you're still going to have the nausea, the constipation, the urinary retention, but methadone also comes with two unique uh, side effect profiles like the respiratory depression, which can be fatal along with the QTC prolongation, uh, which can increase the risk of uh, ventricular arrhythmia like torsades, which can also be fatal. So because of those, you know, respiratory depression and QTC prolongation, especially very important to monitor patients when they're on methadone. So methadone, just like other opioids, is a mu opioid receptor agonist. And through this, it provides the nociceptive pain relief, but it is also an NMDA receptor antagonist. And this is where uh, most of the neuropathic pain relief uh, comes from when you take methadone for chronic pain, for uh, neuropathic pain. And then it is a chiral molecule. So it is available as a racemic mixture comprised of the S enantiomer and the R enantiomer. And methadone is metabolized and cleared hepatically through N-demethylation to its inactive metabolite called EDDP. And the two um, enantiomers, the R and the S methadone are also metabolized to their um, chiral inactive metabolites. So the R-methadone is metabolized and cleared as REDDP, and the S-methadone is metabolized and cleared as SEDDP. And CYP304 doesn't really have a preference, so it will uh, metabolize both R and S-methadone equally well. But the R-methadone is preferentially metabolized by CYP2C19 to REDDP. And the S-methadone is preferentially metabolized by um, CYP2B6 to SEDDP. So what's the difference between the R and the S enantiomer? So one big difference is the affinity at the mu receptor. So the nociceptive pain relief is a result of methadone's action at the mu receptor. And the R enantiomer is tenfold more, uh, much stronger than S enantiomer when it comes to affinity. And as far as potency as well, uh, our um, enantiomer has 50-fold greater potency versus S enantiomer. So methadone can be taken through various routes, orally, rectally, through intravenous routes as well. Uh, so that's one attractive quality about methadone, especially if patients cannot take it through one route. Um, and it is a basic lipophilic molecule. It is detected in blood quickly, 15 to 45 minutes after taking an oral dose. And then it reaches peak concentration anywhere from two and a half hours to four hours. And then after that, it's quickly distributed to the other organs like the brain, the kidney, liver, etc. However, after that, it's slowly released back into the plasma during the redistribution phase. And then it also has some protein binding. So it binds strongly to the alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, as well as to a certain extent to albumin and globulin. Whatever uh, free or unbound methadone is remaining, that can vary from one patient to another as well. And up to fourfold difference has been seen when it comes to unbound methadone floating in the plasma. So that could also explain extreme variability in patient response to methadone. So for example, if a patient has you know, moderate to severe liver disease, they would have reduced alpha-1 acid glycoprotein. So then you're, ex you're gonna expect that patient to have more free methadone floating around. So then that patient might be more prone to having side effects. So when it comes to methadone uh, metabolism and interactions, we have to keep both pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic interactions um, 
in mind. So with pharmacodynamic, uh, especially when it comes to patients taking other CNS depressants like alcohol or benzodiazepine at the same time or antidepressants, all of that can, you know, uh, act together with methadone and make sedation or CNS depressant effect worse. And then as far as pharmacokinetic interactions, we have to be concerned about induction of the CYP enzymes, which if the met uh, methadone's metabolism is increased, then you're going to have lower levels of methadone and efficacy can be impacted. So patient may be more likely to experience increase in their pain when compared to before uh, they had started taking the inducer. And then we also have to be concerned about uh, CYP enzyme inhibition. So with inhibition, safety is the main reason. So if methadone's metabolism is inhibited, that means it's not being metabolized as well. So then you can have more of methadone laying around and that can cause side effects and toxicity. So what CYP enzymes are involved in the met uh, metabolism of methadone? We have CYP3, 4, and this was actually thought to be the enzyme majorly responsible for methadone's metabolism for many years. But in recent years, we found, that, found out that CYP2B6 has most activity. Uh, CYP2C19 is another enzyme that's also involved in metabolizing methadone. Then to a minor extent, we have CYP2D6, 2C8, and 2C9. So 2D6, 2C8, and 2C9, methadone is just a minor substrate of those. Most of the metabolism is done by 3A4, 2B6, and 2C19, uh, with CYP2B6 having the most activity, followed by 3A4, and then 2C19. And then again, as a reminder, 2B6 also likes to preferentially metabolize the S-methadone enantiomer, whereas 2C19 likes to preferentially met metabolize the R enantiomer, whereas 3 or 4 doesn't really have a preference. So let's look at some uh, drugs that can be inducers or inhibitors of methadone metabolism. So as far as inducers, again, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just some examples. So efavirenz, for example, which is an HIV medication, is an inducer of CYP2B6. Um, so if the patient is taking efavirenz along with methadone, then we would expect the um, induction of CYP2B6 enzyme, and that could lower methadone's levels. So at this point, we would want to encourage the patient to use rescue pain medication because they're likely to see an increase in their pain levels. And induction usually takes about one to two weeks to occur. So at about that time, the patient may experience a little bit higher pain levels. So we would want to counsel patients to take their rescue pain medications if needed. We would not want to empirically increase the dose of the methadone, however, at this point. And then for inhibitors, we have several examples here. So amiodarone is one. If a patient is taking amiodarone, which can inhibit CYP3A4 and methadone at the same time, then methadone levels can be increased. And at this point, you would want to empirically reduce methadone dose by at least 25% or greater. And then also encourage patients to use rescue pain medication if they need it for their pain relief. And again, CYP2B6 has the most activity, followed by CYP3A4 and CYP2C19. So that brings us to our first question. And you can go to pollev.com to answer this or text me or ask to 22333 as well. So which of the following CYP enzyme is the predominant CYP isoform responsible for methadone metabolism? Is it 3A4, 2B6, 2C19, or 2D6? All right, looks like most of you got it right. So CYP2B6 in recent years has been known to be the one to have most activity and thus metabolize uh, methadone much more than CYP3A4, even though it likes to preferentially metabolize the S enantiomer. So talking about elimination of methadone next, 
So one attractive quality about methadone is its uh, metabolites are inactive. Um, so it can be used in patients who have poor renal function. So if you cannot use another opioid, then methadone can be an option. Um, and it's eliminated in feces mostly, as well as in urine. But concerning fact about methadone, again, is that very long elimination half-life. So that can range anywhere from five to 130 hours with an average being 20 to 35 hours. So as you can see, it's really long. And again, another important uh, fact to remember about methadone's half-life is the elimination half-life is not the same as the analgesic half-life. So the patient might get pain relief from a dose of methadone for you know, four to six hours, even though they might still have methadone in their body because it's uh, eliminated slowly, but the pain relief doesn't last much long. Uh, so steady state concentration is one of the big factors that's kept in mind when uh, dosing methadone initially, as well as during dose titrations. So it takes anywhere from four to 10 days uh, for methadone to reach its steady state. So if you were to add an inducer on patient's medication list or add an inhibitor, then that can also change the concentration of methadone during that time. So you would want to give the patient another four to 10 days to make changes to the dosing again. So this time period is important to remember uh, when it comes to dosing initiation as well as titration. So because of these unique pharmacokinetic qualities about methadone, we have a few safety guidelines that are out there. Um, so in 2006, FDA uh, public health advisory was uh, released and the FDA basically said that methadone can increase the risk of death through respiratory depression as well as QTC prolongation. So it's very important to uh, make sure that clinicians and family members of patients are both monitoring the patients for signs and symptoms of respiratory depression, as well as making sure the EKG is checked routinely as clinically indicated. And then that was because through 1999 to about 2000, there was a steady increase in methadone-related deaths, anywhere from about 800 to 5,500. So after that period, between 2008 to 2011, there were some guidelines that did come out. Uh, they mostly focused on cardiac safety, but there wasn't any evidence grading that was done for whatever they were recommending. So in 2014, uh, the American Pain Society and the College on Problems of Drug Dependence and Heart Rhythm Society all came together and formed an expert panel to come up with uh, recommendations for safer prescribing of methadone in both chronic pain and opioid use disorder. And then in 2019, another guideline was published and this was focused on safe and effective use of methadone in hospice and palliative care. So these are the main guidelines that we have out there right now. And all of them focus on making sure we use uh, methadone safely to prevent or lower the risk of respiratory depression and QTC prolongation because both of that can be fatal. And as far as pharmacogenomics guideline, we currently don't have any for methadone, but CPIC, which stands for Clinical uh, Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, which is our major um, gold standard pharmacogenomics guideline out there, is actually currently working on uh, grading the evidence for the association between CYP2B6 and methadone. So this guideline could be published sometime towards the later of 2022 or maybe next year. But again, these guidelines are mostly out there and they give great recommendations for what to do to manage or lower the risk of respiratory depression and some monitoring parameters for uh, EKG to lower the risk of QTC prolongation.
So let's look at respiratory depression here first. So the greatest risk occurs is basically during uh, starting time when you start the patient on methadone or when you increase the dose. And some risk factors are if you start the patient on a high dose right off the bat, uh, if you're increasing the dose too quickly, and if you're not accounting for interacting medications. And when I say interacting medications, both pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic interactions have to be kept in mind. So if a patient is drinking alcohol or has benzodiazepines as well at home, and if they're using both with methadone, then that can really have a CNS depressant effect and increase the risk of respiratory depression. As far as pharmacokinetic interactions, especially with the CYP enzyme inhibitors that can increase the levels of methadone. So very important to monitor the patients during that time uh, for um, respiratory depression and empirically reducing the dose of methadone when an inhibitor is prescribed is also recommended in the guidelines. So the recommendations from both the hospice palliative care guidelines and the one from American Pain Society is to monitor for signs and symptoms of respiratory depression. So this would be things like, you know, slowed breathing or excessive drowsiness, or if the patient is slow to wake up. So you would want to monitor the patient for a period of five to seven days after you start the patient on methadone and after you increase the dose. So QTC prolongation is another adverse effect that we need to watch out for when it comes to methadone. Um, so the guidelines recommend obtaining an EKG before starting methadone, especially if the patient has risk factors for QTC prolongation already. And if the patient has had an EKG before and the QTC was greater than 450 milliseconds in the past. And if they have a history of uh, suggestive of prior ventricular arrhythmia, so what are the risk factors for QTC prolongation? So one would be electrolyte abnormalities. So if they have low magnesium and low potassium, that's a risk factor for QTC prolongation. If they have impaired liver function, because that can also reduce the activity of the CYP enzymes and um, also, you know, um, reduce the alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, which methadone likes to bind to. So if you have impaired liver function, you might have more free methadone floating around in the plasma. Uh, if they have structural heart disease, so if they have any type of congenital um, uh, QTC uh, diseases, or if they have heart failure, or if they have prior uh, endocarditis infection, uh, genetic predisposition would be like congenital diseases that increase your risk of QTC prolongation. And then finally, also if they are taking other drugs that are known to prolong QTC, so like antiarrhythmics or antipsychotics, antiemetics like ondansetron. All of these are uh, risk factors for QTC prolongation. So what can we do to manage this risk? Uh, the American Pain Society, as well as the hospice and palliative care guidelines, they agree uh, that we should con uh, consider an alternate opioid if the baseline QTC interval is 450 milliseconds or greater, but less than 500. And they recommend avoiding methadone altogether if the baseline QTC is greater than 500 milliseconds because the risks of uh, ventricular arrhythmia, fatal ventricular arrhythmia like torsades really increases with these higher QTCs. So as far as dosing recommendations for methadone, uh, the typical starting dose is 2.5 milligrams three times a day for pain. Again, the pain relief provided by methadone is short-lived. That's why it has to be dosed multiple times a day, even though the elimination half-life is long. 
Uh, but for frail and elderly patients, uh, you would want to start at a much lower dose. So total dose of two milligrams per day would be the minimum you would use to up to 7.5 milligrams per day in divided doses. So if you're really concerned about side effects for a frail elderly patient in hospice care, then you might want to do one milligram in the morning and one milligram later during the day. Total and then tighter it up slowly from there. And then again, doses should not be increased until patient has received the same methadone dose for at least five to seven days. And then the other recommendations are for dose increases. So again, you should not be increasing uh, more than five milligrams per day of methadone every five to seven days. And then when the total daily dose of methadone is past 30 to 40 milligrams per day for pain, um, then the dose increase should not be more than 10 milligrams per day every five to seven days. Again, the bottom line with methadone is starting slow and then going slow. So that's main, the main take home with methadone, just because we really do not want to increase the risk of respiratory depression, which can be fatal, or QTC prolongation, which can also be fatal. So that brings us to our next question. So all of the following are risk factors for methadone-induced QTC prolongation, except um, A, electrolyte abnormalities, B, any prior QTC of less than 450 milliseconds, uh, structural heart disease, or use of concomitant drugs known to prolong QTC. Okay, looks like most of you got it right. So yes, the risk of QTC prolongation increases as the QTC is greater than 450, but less than that, the risk is not as much. All right, so how can pharmacogenomics help us with, you know, making sure our patients on methadone are getting dosed right? So let's look at the impact of gene variation first. So gene variation can depend on the genotypes that the patient receives, so the alleles that they receive from their parents, as well as what type of drug they're taking, whether it's an active drug or a pro-drug. So let's look at an example of an active drug first. So if a patient is taking an active drug such as methadone or let's say citalopram and they are a poor metabolizer of uh, CYP2C19 if they're taking citalopram, then you would expect them to have higher amounts of drug because they're not metabolizing that citalopram very well. If they are a normal metabolizer, then we would expect them to have optimal uh, response to citalopram. If they are an ultra rapid metabolizer of 2C19 and they're taking citalopram, then you, know, you might see little drug and not uh, a whole lot of benefit with that drug. Now, prodrugs are a little different. So if a patient is taking prodrug and they're a poor metabolizer, then they're not converting that prodrug into its active form. So they're not really getting much of the active form. So you would expect the patient to not get ben much benefit from the drug. So an example of this is codeine. So codeine is metabolized from being a prodrug to its active form, which is morphine. So if a person is a poor metabolizer, then they would not be getting a whole lot of morphine. So we would expect them to not experience pain relief. But if they are a normal metabolizer, then that's fine because you're gonna get the desired clinical outcome. If they are an ultra rapid metabolizer and they're taking a pro-drug like codeine, then you would expect them to have too much of that active morphine from their codeine and they might be more prone to getting side effects. So gene variations within the CYP enzymes can alter pharmacokinetics of drugs, and that alteration can be dependent based on what type of drug they're taking, whether it's an active drug or a pro-drug. 
So right now, as far as opioids are concerned, we have some guidelines, but most of the recommendations are just for codeine and tramadol. So these recommendations come from the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium guidelines. Uh, this was published in 2021. So we have recommendations for codeine and tramadol for ultra rapid metabolizers. We would want to avoid them because of the risk of toxicity. And we would also want to avoid codeine and tramadol in poor metabolizers of 2D6 because of the risk of uh, inefficacy. And then we also have some recommendations uh, for hydrocodone, but it's not a strong recommendation. So if a person is a poor metabolizer of 2D6, then they may not get a lot of pain relief from it. So if you start the patient on a normal dose and they're not really getting any response or benefit, then you would want to move on to an alternative. But again, since they're a 2D6 poor metabolizer, you would want to avoid codeine and tramadol. And oxycodone is another drug that they did talk about in the 2021 guidelines, but right now there's no recommendations for it um, because the drug gene interactions with oxycodone, there hasn't been um, a strong association that was seen. So methadone, again, we don't have anything right now, but CPEG is currently reviewing evidence for 2B6 and methadone's uh, interaction. So now moving on to the pharmacogenomics of methadone. So again, methadone is metabolized by a lot of CYP enzymes, primarily by CYP2B6, followed by CYP3A4 and 2C19. And then it's a minor substrate of the rest of the CYP enzymes. So if a person has genetic variation within any of these genes, then we would expect them to have some alteration in the pharmacokinetics of methadone as well. So what exactly is CYP2B6? So it is a very highly polymorphic gene, meaning it has several different variants. There's been up to 16 different variants, which uh, cause a patient to be a poor metabolizer. And then the ones that uh, do have the poor metabolizer uh, genotype inherited, that can also significantly impact the methadone pharmacokinetics. The S-methadone apparent oral clearance, which again, S-methadone is preferentially metabolized by 2B6, in people who had the star six allele, uh, were found to be lower when compared to the wild type, which is the star one, star one combination. And in some studies where uh, patients uh, died from methadone related fatalities uh, and they checked the blood levels later, uh, some of those patients also were noted to have the star six, star six allele combination as well. So out of all of the star uh, CYP2B6 variants, the star six is the most common variant and it produces a poor metabolizer phenotype. And if a patient is a poor metabolizer of CYP2B6, then they have low enzyme activity, uh, which means that whatever drug is preferentially metabolized by CYP2B6 is not going to be metabolized properly. So you're gonna have an accumulation of that drug. And as a result of that, you might have increased toxicity if it's an active drug. So this chart um, just shows the different biogeographical groups by ethnicity and which patient groups have, uh, are more common, are uh, more commonly have the poor metabolizer phenotype for CYP2B6. So as you can see here, patients of Sub-Saharan Af and African-American and Afro-Caribbean um, ethnicities and Oceanian groups are more likely to be poor metabolizers. So 16% of African-American or Afro-Caribbean may be poor metabolizers of uh, CYP2B6, 24% in the Sub-Saharan African group, and then 41% in the Oceanian group. However, in the other ethnicities, uh, the CYP2B6 poor metabolizer phenotype is not commonly seen.
so that brings us to my first study. Um, and this was a study published in Scotland back in 2011. And it was the first study that looked at genetic associations between uh, methadone related deaths and methadone levels. And at that time, they were seeing increasing reports of inter-individual variation in the blood uh, concentrations of methadone and a toxic drug accumulation as a result of that. So that's why this study was done. So usually with methadone, in a methadone-tolerant patient, uh, they can tolerate up to greater than 0.84 of um, methadone con concentration in blood. But fatalities usually occur in like naive patients, anywhere from 0.4 to 1.84. But sometimes fatalities can also occur if the blood concentrations are as low as 0.05. So there's a lot of variation between patients. Um, so this, uh, the authors of this uh, paper, they thought that the potential reasons for these uh, inter-individual variation could be either due to the genetic uh, variations within the CYP enzymes, which then alter the pharmacokinetics of methadone. So the two genes they wanted to look at uh, in this paper was the OPRM1 gene, which is a mu opioid receptor gene, and then the CYP2B6 gene. So they just wanted to evaluate the possible role that OPRM1 gene and CYP2B6 might play in increasing the susceptibility of a person to methadone toxicity. Um, and they looked at the um, A118G variant because in the past, uh, this variant has been linked to decrease in opioid binding and increased morphine requirements in other smaller studies. And also because uh, OPRM1 gene uh, gives rise to the mu opioid receptor protein, which is the preferential binding site for methadone. And they looked at CYP2B6 because it's involved in the metabolism of methadone and it's highly polymorphic um, in different people. So they genotyped 40 postmortem cases. Uh, so they essentially took the DNA out of the uh, whole blood and genotyped it. Um, and for all of these 40 cases, uh, the cause of death was written as methadone-related fatality. Um, and for their CYP2B6 results, they found that the levels of methadone in blood for the individuals that had the star one, star six, and the star six, star six genotypes were higher compared to the, one, uh, the people that had the star one, star one, or the wild type genotype. And this difference was significant. But with the OPRM1 gene results, um, so there were uh, 36 patients with the AA and the four patients with the GA variant. Um, but they didn't really see a difference here. So essentially, individuals who were slow metabolizers of CYP2B6 had higher concentrations of methadone in their blood based on this study. Um, so the next study is also a pharmacokinetic study, and this was published in 2015. And here they wanted to look at the role of CYP2B6 polymorphisms in the clearance of methadone. Um, so again, you know, the inter-individual uh, variability of methadone is not really uh, explained. So they wanted to see if the CYP2B6 star six has any role to play here, because in vitro studies have shown that uh, star six uh, deficiently catalyzes methadone metabolism. So they looked at um, the genotypes of 64 healthy volunteers after they had been uh, taken methadone. Uh, 42 were Caucasians, 10 were African-Americans, 10 were Asians, and the ethnicities of two others were unknown. Um, and then 21 had the wild-type genotype, 20 had the intermediate phenotype, which is the star one, star six of the 2B6, and then 17 had the poor metabolizer phenotype because they had the star six, star six combination. And then one of them had the star one, star four. 
with three people having star four, star six, and star five, star five for the remaining. Um, so essentially, they received a single dose of IV methadone and oral methadone, and then after that, the authors measured the plasma and the urine methadone and metabolite concentrations. So compared to the wild type individuals, meaning those that carried the star one, star one combination, the S methadone average levels or average clearance orally was 35% lower in intermediate metabolizers. So the ones that had star one, star six, and 45% lower in star six, star six, which are the poor metabolizers. So again, as a reminder, S-methadone is preferentially metabolized by CYP2B6. So it makes sense that in four metabolizers, the clearance of S-methadone would be lower. And then they also saw some racial differences. So out of the 10 African-American patients, six of them had the star six, star six, or the poor metabolizer phenotype, which is in alignment with what we see um, in world's population. Uh, patients of sub-Saharan and African-American descent are known to be uh, poor metabolizers compared to other uh, ethnicities. So essentially, the CYP2B6 star six genetic polymorphisms can reduce the clearance of met metabolism, and we could use this information to identify individuals that may be at risk for methadone toxicity. Um, so the last study is a new study from 2021, and this was done in children. Um, so here they wanted to look at how CYP2B6 plays a role on clinical outcomes from perioperative methadone use in children. So they genotyped uh, 53 children. They gave them one dose of IV methadone before the operation. And after operation, they received oral doses of methadone every 12 hours for about three to five days. And then their main outcome that they looked at was uh, post-operative nausea and vomiting. And then for secondary outcome, they looked at the maximum post-operative pain scores. And they measured the metabolites, both the R and the S enantiomer in plasma, and they sequenced all of the relevant variants of CYP2B6, even the ones that we, don't, uh, we didn't know that existed, essentially. And as a result of that, they actually found some novel CYP2B6 genetic variants. And the first SNP that you see here with the number 1038376, uh, in individuals that carried that genotype, they were more likely to have post-operative nausea vomit, vomiting if they had the TT genotype versus if they had the AA or the AT genotype. And this was a statistically significant difference. Same thing for the second SNP. So post-operative nausea and vomiting was also greater in this group if they carried the AG and the GG versus the AA genotype. And the difference here was also a statistically significant. Uh, but they didn't really see a difference uh, between the pain scores and the, these two novel SNPs that they found for the CYP2B6. As far as CYP2B6 star 6 star 6, um, it was greater than twofold lower when it comes to the R and the S methadone metabolism compared to individuals who were normal or rapid metabolizers of CYP2B6. However, there were only uh, four poor metabolizer children in this study, and two of them were rapid metabolizers. All of the rest were normal and intermediate. So even though they did see a difference, it's not really statistically significant because of such a small sample. So from this study, you know, there are potentially other uh, variants within the CYP2B6 gene that could also alter um, how we react to methadone or how methadone's uh, pharmacokinetic can be altered as a result of the SNPs that we've inherited. So moving on to patient case. 
so we have AD, who is a 64-year-old male with a poor pain control after due to secondary uh, metastatic cancer, and he was referred to our clinic for reviewing his PGX testing results with regards to his pain medication. Um, and as you can see here, he's a normal metabolizer of CYP3 or 4, an intermediate metabolizer of CYP2B6 because of that star 1, star 6 allele combination, a normal metabolizer of CYP2C19, and then he's a poor metabolizer of CYP2D6. And as I talked about previously, all of these genes are involved in methadone metabolism with CYP2B6 having the most activity. So as far as his pain regimen, uh, currently when he was consulted with us, he was taking methadone 30 milligrams every eight hours, hydromorphone 24 milligrams every three hours as needed and gabapentin 300 milligrams TID. Um, and in the past, um, he had tried tramadol and hydrocodone and oxycodone, but they were not really effective for him. So when we assessed his past pain medication, it makes sense that the tramadol was not effective because it's a prodrug which relies on CYP2D6 for being converted to its active form and patient is a poor metabolizer of CYP2D6. Uh, the hydrocodone and oxycodone was also not effective for him. We don't have strong guideline recommendation for these two opioids, but again, they do rely on CYP2D6 to be converted to hydromorphone and oxymorphone respectively. So his poor CYP2D6 metabolizer phenotype could possibly have contributed to him not experiencing pain relief from those two medications. So as far as methadone, um, the oral methadone clearance may be decreased by 25 to 35%, like we saw in one of the studies, um, because of his uh, CYP2B6 metabolizer phenotype, which is intermediate. So for this patient, we recommended that the clinician monitor for adverse effects, especially with dose titration. So counseling patients' family members to watch out for you know, any signs of prolonged sedation or respiratory depression, especially around the time when the dose is being increased, just because he's an intermediate metabolizer of CYP2B6. Uh, with his hydromorphone, we had no recommendation. There's no CYP450 interactions known. Uh, so he could continue to use that and type it up as tolerated. And same thing for gabapentin, no drug gene interactions known. So we just recommended uh, the clinician to continue it. So last question here, which of the following genotypes is associated with reduced clearance of methadone? Is this the 2B6 star 1, star 1, star 1, star 6 of 2D6, CYP3, 4, star 1, star 1, or CYP2B6, star 6, star 6? Okay, so it looks like everybody got it right. It is CYP2B6 star 6 star 6, which makes a person a poor metabolizer because of the reduced to no activity of 2B6. And that could further contribute to reduced clearance of methadone. So to conclude my presentation today, um, methadone's pharmacokinetics is already unique and throwing pharmacogenetic factors in there can further puzzle the situation. But again, we've seen reduced clearance with methadone that has been seen in slower metabolizers of CYP2B6. So if we can, keeping pharmacogenomic considerations also in mind when initiating methadone or during dose titration is absolutely critical. So we would want to recommend close monitoring of patients who are CYP2B6 slow metabolizers, either because they have the star one, star six or the star six, star six uh, variants. Right now, again, we don't really have uh, pharmacogenomic guidelines for methadone and CYP2B6, but they will be out there shortly in the future because CPIC, the major PGX guideline, is currently reviewing evidence for 2B6 uh, role in methadone.
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.